Welcome to the Filmlinks Podcast. A moral podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is episode 159, Calle du Cinema Part 2, Eric Romer. And Alex, that is a moral podcast, not a moral podcast, right? Yeah, although I guess it could be a moral podcast, if, depending on your perspective. <laughs> but that's kind of the point. And maybe the most important thing is not whether we are a moral podcast or an or amoral podcast, but whether or not we live up to our own definitions of whether or not we morality. think we're a moral podcast. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. We think we're moral, therefore we are moral. But is that correct? I don't know. <laughs> That's we'll find the out. worst type of morality. Yeah. Um, anyway, we're talking more about the French New Wave and specifically Eric Romer. Um, but before we dive into the filmmaker today, I want to talk a little bit more about the context of the French New Wave within the history of France and culture itself. Um, and it, it should be a f- pretty familiar story for anybody who's studied early post-World War II uh, culture of any kind or anybody who's familiar with baby boomer culture. It's essentially what it is. Um, but each week, I would just want to come back to this topic a little bit to add context to it because often, more often than not, where we try to add value in addition to the analysis of the films on this show is by adding a little bit of context as to how they were made, why they were made, and so on and so forth. And oftentimes, while a piece of culture should be able to be enjoyed without that context, if you're really studying the greater fab work, uh, the greater fabric of culture as a whole, and where stuff fits into that and the development of it and the history of it, then a little bit of historical context can be very helpful. So uh, we need to take it back to World War II, as we so often do in this in this podcast That's and history in general. That's where the hinge point for basically the modern era. And after World War II, the French nation was not in a good spot. It was pretty much broken. Uh, it had been conquered by the Nazis. Um, and while there were those who in France who resisted with all their might, um, the famous French resistance, and there was a lot of pride in it, there were also collaborators who kind of either welcomed or complied with the Nazis on their entry to the country, known as the Vichy regime. And France kind of didn't know what to make of that after the war. What's going to be the narrative? Should it be pride in the French resistance or shame of the Vichy regime? And there's this is a common theme with France. They're not the only country to have this, but it's a common theme overall. I mean, if you look at the French Revolution as well, there's a lot of pride in the early part of the revolution where it's all about expanding personal liberties and tuning down the monarchy. And there's a lot of shame involved in the latter part of the revolution where it gets all head choppy and let's make Napoleon our great empire and dictator, therefore, therefore nullifying the entire point of the revolution. Um, so France has kind of done that a lot and they're going to do it again with their culture as we see today. Um, and maybe more importantly than all of the ideas of French culture itself, um, were, was the fact that the economy was just broken. That's going to happen anytime there's a giant war like that. Um, and that economy would be rebuilt in large help from other powers in the West, namely America. And eventually France's economy would spring back and boom in the post-World War II era, but not without some changes to it. 
maybe most notably was the fact that the population exploded very much like it did in other Western countries, as you know, of the American baby boomers. Um, but a lot of those births weren't coming from traditional French families. There was a lot of immigration and there were a lot of pregnancies and births happening outside of traditional families, essentially out of wedlock, um, which meant that the primary force that would keep a traditional con, uh, culture intact, passing it down from one generation of a family to another, wasn't as intact as it otherwise would have been. So the culture itself was primed for a huge shift. In addition, the economic aid from America came with a lot of stipul stipulations. For instance, pre-World War II, American films were mostly banned from France. You couldn't show them there. You couldn't distribute them there outside of like a personal venue. Uh, but that changed uh, in post-World War II, and there was a huge influx of American movies, including this whole backlog of Western movies that had previously gone unwatched. So this is when uh, like Hitchcock films would invade France and become very popular eventually with cinema clubs. In addition, the post-World War II prosperity uh, promoted technologies such as the TV and the car in an affordable manner so that they were basically available to everybody. And those two things, the TV as a form of visual media that would keep you home from the cinema, and the car, a piece of technology that could take you to other luxury activities, such as lounging on the French Riviera, um, kind of turned, uh, took the floor out from under what was left of the French film industry. It reached its peak in 1956, a full decade after um, the American film industry reached its peak peak film going rate in 1946, but it tumbled off a cliff at that point. Um, and film going changed in such a drastic way uh, because the audience changed. Who who was left going to the, um, the films in the movies were urban, young, better educated, and better economically off than previous audiences were. Essentially, cinema stopped being the, the entertainment of the masses and became the entertainment of a select few. Um, and that would eventually influence and become the people who would become part of the French new wave directors. Um, and there is always been, at least to me, and I think to other people too, to a certain extent, a certain whiff of elitism, whether it's bourgeois or intellectualism or something of that nature about French New Wave films. And I think this might explain it. The background of people who grew up watching and making French New Wave films was that of slightly better educated, slightly better economically off, maybe a little more worldly. And that kind of ex permeates the films as well. And I think that, cult that cultural context is important to understanding the filmmakers and why they made the films the way they did. And I think the locations, especially in Romer's films we'll see today, definitely play into that idea. Um, and culture as a whole became what we would call modern or self-aware of itself and its changing identity. And artists at this point in time and still to this day uh, started to create with this in mind, like you had to kind of consciously decide whether or not you were following a more traditional bent of culture or inventing a new form of culture, um, as well as kind of like this more general industry that exists to criticize and discuss cultural change at a larger level that still exists today. I mean, the filmings is part of it. Cahiers do cinema is part of it. Um, 
that has become much more common. I do also want to leave on this last bit, which is that the term nouvelle vogue, I'm not saying that right, and I'm not trying to because I can't do French. I'm not sure the French can do French. Um, The French don't care what they do, actually, as long as they pronounce it properly. (laughs) Um, But that just means the new wave. And that was originally not a term for the movies, but rather a term coined by the French magazine L'Express. Think like the Times here in America but French. Um, And it wasn't in reference to the films, but rather in a reference to that huge wave of young people post-World War II, um, aged like 16 to 35, who would become essentially that baby boomer generation. That was kind of the French term for it. And uh, I just want to leave off on one tip. Le boom des enfants. There you go. Um, But yeah, I want to leave off on this one interesting tidbit. And I think this is important to remember because we talk about a lot of these things and a lot of these cultural discussions as if everyone's having them. But uh, Le Express actually had a survey they did with young people where they were asking them cultural questions. Were they concerned about the course of modern uh, literature? Was it deviating too much from classical literature? Or were they concerned about something else? And most young people responded that they were mostly thinking about getting jobs and starting families and, you know, reading whatever culture appealed to them, mostly detective novels at the time. And I just want to throw that out there because I think it goes to show that while People in the French New Wave were thinking so hard about the what film was and could be. They were definitely the minority of people. And even us here on the Filmlings, we definitely fall within this strict like minority of film fans who care a lot about this stuff. But it's not super common. So sometimes you read these books and it makes a lot of these matters sound like they're uh, do or die or life ending circumstances but it's also important to know that it's kind of like a bit of a fringe interest um which but also there is still there is still a sense in which uh those those intellectual circles uh do kind of influence the way that the masses will experience films eventually because i mean yeah, as I we're talking about the, they're the ones that end the up making part of the it. films yeah is that because so few people are interested in this those who are can therefore have an outsized impact on the course yeah. of culture as a whole. They become the taste makers yeah. by default. So many, so many people, so few people are interested in steering the ship that the number, those who still have their hands on the wheel have an outsized impact. Um, and you definitely see that with the French New Wave, I think. But specifically right. today, Which is we're why talking, A24 is going to take over Hollywood because no one else is thinking about where Hollywood should go. <laughs> Yeah, no one else is, is is really putting an effort in. It was Marvel for a while, but Marvel's kind of furthering. So um, it's it might be A24. I don't know. We'll see. We can only talk about it certainties in retrospect. And even then, maybe not. But today we're specifically talking about Eric Romer, or should I say Jean-Marie Maurice Scherer, or should I say Maurice Jean Scherer, who was born in either Toul or Nantes, France, uh, maybe in 1920. And Did if this guy exist? <laughs> this guy, Eric Romer. So the, the first thing we should talk about with him, and the, unlike Godard, uh, was very private about his personal life. Um, he claims, he, he often says that a lot of his films are super personal, so they're probably the best chance we're going to get at understanding who he is. But... Um, 
he's he kind of was pretty notorious for giving reporters contradictory information about his birth names dates and locations um so there's not that much to talk about when it comes to eric romer's personal life mostly we're interestingly going to focus on his professional after a quick life. after a quick wikipedia it looks like he's and this is important regarding the films that we're going to be talking about today he looks like the only one of the uh Kaye directors that we're talking about who was only married to one person yeah, he was he was he was only married once. He, he's also also notably the oldest of them, um, right? And he's so also, like like you asked last time, like who is Godard to the Kaye? I think of Romer as like either the cool uncle or almost. This may not be right because I haven't seen the film yet, but uh, like Robin Williams' character in Dead Poet Society, like the the teacher that they all kind of look up to. Although I wouldn't did, say that I wouldn't say the teacher. <laughs> we'll get we'll get to why, but he's definitely yeah, they definitely had the, differences. But he yeah. was like part of his thing is that he was a teacher. Like that's his original. Yeah, he occupation. was originally he was a teacher. Yes, um, but yeah, he was uh, he was definitely the most conservative of the group, and that comes into to play as if if you guys remember from last episode, we talked about Godard and his politics, and that he was a far left Marxist um, who promoted revolutions in parts of the world. Like he was, he was far left and Romer wasn't super far right, but he was definitely conservative in the stance of like, in the idea of like a traditionalist. Um, I have a quote. I have a quote from him where he says, I prefer ideas that are as old as the Hills and unashamedly. So to the flat echo of the turn of the century writing that Europe is wont to take as its inspiration. Which I think yeah, can be seen go. in a lot of the films we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we don't know him as Jean-Marie Maurice Scherer. Uh, we know him as Eric Romer. It was his nom de plume and functionally his name, as far as we're concerned, for most of his life. Um, and he took bits from two of his favorite creators, Eric von Stroheim, who is a famous um, uh, silent film director, uh, in Austria and America, and Sax Romer, who was a British author of the Fu Manchu series, whose villain spawned the idea of the Fu Manchu mustache. Um, so that's such a seemingly contradictory thing to me, but I also love it that he picks. It's somebody like who his made, Reddit name. Yeah, right. <laughs> it's like somebody he picked uh, like an artistic director and a essentially like a comic book. Yeah, writer. right. Um, that, which is such a interesting mashup, but I love that people keep defying those expectations. It's never, I, I try to explain this to people when I, I tell them what kind of movies I watch and that it's all the kinds of movies that there are. It's it, just because you like the artsy movies doesn't mean you don't like the poppy movies too. Like yeah. you like, you, you enjoy them all. Um, I feel, I feel like restriction in that matter is short-sighted, but regardless, Eric Romer, uh, did originally work as a teacher in cl- the town of Clermont Ferrand, uh, which is the location uh, for My Night at Mods, at least the majority of My Night at Mods, uh, before moving to Paris in the 40s to become a freelance journalist and writer. And he also did publish a novel, uh, Les Vancances, in 1946, um, also known as Elizabeth. Uh, 
But much like Godard, he began attending cinema clubs where he met his other new wave conspirators and co-directors. He participated in the short-lived Gazette du Cinema venture with Godard and Rivette before signing on to the much more successful and well-known Cahiers du Cinema. Um, he was likely the most conservative of the group um, and had a very different writing style than a lot of the other uh participators in the French New Wave. Godard and Truffaut were typically much more aggressive and rebellious and very youthful in their writing, whereas Romer had a tendency to be a little more reserved, rhetorical, and less assertive in his writing, posing questions to the audience in order to get them to think about the movies that they saw. Um, Starting in 1950, Romer began making short films, starting with one titled Journal du Secretariat, um, which was shot on a bar. I'm not even going to try, guys. I'm, it's not going to go well if I try, so I'm just going to make it goofy. Which was if shot. If we had a, listeners, we would get hate mail for all this. We would. <laughs> French hate mail. French hate mail. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, which was shot on a borrowed camera in 16 millimeter. He would continue to collaborate mostly with Godard and Chabrol on more short films. I found it interesting that Godard starred in multiple of Romer's short films. Um, he and Chabrol co-wrote 1957's Hitchcock, which was one of the first film books to put the concept of auteur theory to paper, focusing on Hitchcock's biography as well as his work in cinema um, and how the two related to one another, uh, which is pretty important considering uh, Hitchcock grew up Catholic in a very strict Catholic school that uh, had him thinking quite a bit about right and wrong and false accusations and uh, also bringing a lot of that Catholic guilt to bear. And that shows a lot in his work. In 1959, uh, Romer would direct his first feature, The Sign of Leo. Uh, this would be produced by Chabrol's production company, uh, which would eventually go under, but Romer thankfully made his own production company, Les Films du Lassange, uh, which I thought was lozenge, but maybe it's not. Um, it might be the same word. I don't know what it means in French. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but it would be it would be the one that all of his tales would be released under, and I think he still used it up through the end of his life, end of his career. I don't think he's dead. Uh, starting in 1962, Romer began working uh, he is on dead. his. Oh, he died. He died in oh. 2010. Oh, 2010. A- age 89. He was he lived a long life. 89 that's pretty good that i would not be mad about that 89 is darn good starting in 1962 romer began work on his most famous film series moral tales each of which was based on the structure of fw murnau's uh famous famous silent film sunrise a song of two humans from 1927 in which a content man is tempted by a second woman before eventually returning to the first seriously if i had a nickel for every director who said they loved fw murnau's sunrise a song of two humans and based a movie off of it i would have like so many nickels um he had previously written the tales as short stories before uh before he decided to adapt them and in fact if you get the criterion dvd collection you will get the booklet with all the uh with all the short stories in it as well and i will say i really enjoyed reading the the short stories before watching the movies and that might be because might become one of my uh go-tos with foreign language films especially for the podcast is to read the script or whatever work it was based off of 
first, as long as it's not a full novel, and then to watch the movie. I feel like it helps me follow it a lot mm. better. Um, this will be a, this will be a fun turn of tables because usually I'm the one doing that. Oh my my my! How the turns have tabled. Um, as the new wave progressed from writing to making movies, we talked about this last time. Like the fifties, the forties is when they meet up. The early fifties is when they start writing film criticism, and the fifties as a whole decade is when they start making short films. By the end of the fifties, they're all making feature films, movies. And that's kind of when they become directors. But Romer's uh, one as, of the last ones to to jump into directing. He is. And then he does it with a vengeance. Um, yeah. He's maybe one of the most consistent film directors out of the group. Um, it, he's he's very, like, orderly with his work, as as we'll explain in a second. But mm-hmm. Romer continued, uh, as, as the new wave progressed from writing to making movies, Romer would be one of the few people in the group who continued to like uh, new releases of American movies. Other people in the group, Godard, Truffaut, would start to move away from them and enjoy them less and less um, and embrace more radical left-wing ideas um, and cinema ver- verite ideas, which makes a lot of sense for the 60s and for the people we're talking about, and specifically like we saw with Godard, um, who got wonkier and wonkier with his style as he went on. Uh, he he just eventually, threw everything out the window. Yeah, uh, sometimes literally. Uh, Romer would resign from his position at the magazine in 1963. I've heard some sources dis- uh, describe it as a resignation. I've seen some sources uh, describe it as him being forced out. Sounds like it was a bit of both. Ro- Romer, Romer actually has, well, I watched an interview with him and uh, the producer of Les Films de Losange, uh, and uh, yeah, in, in terms of him leaving Kaye, he there's there's an interesting story about how he cites Truffaut as being one of the main instigators of him leaving. Uh, and then later they reconnected because uh, he was doing a documentary on some author that Truffaut really liked. So they brought him in and they got to talking. And uh, Romer said he wasn't he wasn't mad about it because it was it was like. He kind of needed to leave. He needed that kick in the pants to go do other things and not be bogged down with the administration of Kaye. Uh, but then Truffaut actually read the uh, the script for My Night at Mods, which no one would produce, and uh, ended up scrounging up some money to uh, to help him produce it. So then they kind of had a reunion over that. Oh, that's nice. Um, but after his... Uh, departure from the magazine, he still needed a day job because much as today, making movies as a director does not make money unless you're making TV. <laughs> um, and that's what Romer did in the 60s, uh, less so as the t- as time would go on, but mostly in the 60s when he was still getting started and those first three um, moral tales were coming out that were not as polished as the last three and definitely didn't have the budget of the last three. Uh, he was working in television, making mostly shark documentaries, but he would continue his moral tales until they wrap in 1972. And after that, Romer started another series of six films called Comedies and Proverbs, in which each uh, film was based off of a proverb that ran from 1980 to 1987. And then after that, 
And then in the 90s, he made another series of films called The Tales of the Four Seasons from 1990 to 1998, which I need to check out uh, because I've also watched some of Kurosawa's seasonal tales. And I'm curious if there's any correlation. I think they come out around the same time, too. So I'm really curious if there's any correlation there. Are you Kurosawa? Kurosawa, um, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's my new Reddit name. Um, in 2007, Romer released his final film, The Romance of Astrea and Celadon, and retired. And as Jonathan mentioned, he passed away in 2010, not long after at the ripe old age of 89, which is pretty yep. darn impressive. But Jonathan, now that I've slaughtered my share of French, it's your turn. What Ooh. movies are we talking about specifically out of the six moral tales today? Real quick note uh, before moving away from this, because we just talked about his uh, time making TV documentaries, and there's actually at least one or two of them in some of the Criterion special features. And uh, basically what a lot of those TV programs were, were conversations. They basically today would be a podcast series where he gets two interesting people together to talk about a topic uh, for a long time. And so he said later that those those documentaries are what got him interested or realizing the potential of how interesting it can be to film conversations about deep topics. And so that carries over into the way that he ends up making films. Um, and the films that we're talking about, which are very conversational, uh, starting with My Night at Mods. So we're, we're hitting three of the big moral tales because we're not covering all six, but I'm sure a few of the others are going to crop up. Uh, but we're going to start with My Nine at Mods from 1969, uh, directed, written by Eric Romer, starring Jean-Louis Trintignant, Francois <laughs> Fabian, and Marie-Christine Berrault. Uh, cinematography by Nestor Alamendros. Uh, they're actually all cinematography by Nestor Alamendros. Uh, he was very important in, in uh, the work of... Eric Romer, and apparently was super helpful because on some of these that had very, very little money, uh, specifically La Collectionneur, uh, La Collectionneur, I think they said that they basically shot a two-to-one ratio of footage to used film, which is insane. It's insane. Basically, yeah. he said he turned it over to the editors, uh, and he was very involved in the editing process, but the editors looked at it, and they thought that it was a short film uh, based yeah. on the, the amount of footage. But they were, he was just very, basically, Nestor was able to get every shot practically in the first take for almost every one of the uh, shots in that film. So he, he films all these. Uh, and then the second film is Claire's Knee from 1970, starring Jean-Claude Brialim, Aurora Cornu, and Beatrice Roman. And finally, we'll be talking about the last of the moral tales, Love in the Afternoon from 1972, not to be confused with the Billy Wilder film starring Audrey Hepburn and Gary Cooper, but this is very, very different than that film. Yeah. The, um, the American movie actually came out first, which is shocking. Yeah, in the 50s, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Uh, you'd think that he would have picked a different... I mean, he was very much aware of Billy Wilder, so you'd think that he would have uh, picked a different name for the film. Anyway, uh, starring Bernard Verlet, Francois Verlet, and Zuzu. There you go. Uh, it's like Cher. We, you don't need you don't need a last name. You just need yeah. Zuzu. 
especially if your name is Zuzu. Um, yeah. But before we move on, let's talk a little bit about the idea of morality, because these are moral tales. Uh, and so we can define morality as in the dictionary, uh, the principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. And Romer himself talks about the way that he uses morality in these films as being specifically what we're going to see is that the films are about the ways that the protagonist, which as Alex already said, it's about a man kind of choosing between two women, the woman he's supposed to be with and the woman who's tempting him away from the woman he's already with or is supposed to be with. Uh, and so the films are about the morality that the man sets up for himself and the way that that's challenged in real life situations. Uh, and Eric Romer said himself that a moralist is someone who is interested in the description of what goes on inside man. He's concerned with states of mind and feelings. So that's what we're going to get a lot of today. Alex, I found, I came across this, uh, do you know what film it was that kind of kicked off a gear in Eric Romer's head to uh, start thinking about films in a moralist way? Mm, was it thinking about films in a moralist way, a documentary in American movies? No, it wasn't. Um, so Eric Romer wrote a, an article in Cahiers du Cinema in 1955 called Rediscovering America. Uh, and I'm going to read this quote. He's, he's already established which film it is, but I'm going to let uh, Alex figure it out as we go, because we've talked about it already. And then came the day, this is the quote, and then came the day in the shape of Claudette Colbert and Clark Gable, the cinema held up to me under the most favorable lighting, a face without artifice, unpolished but not rough. It spoke to me in a language that was open yet without a hint of coarseness in its tone. It behaved like the most civilized of creatures yet without diminishing any of its naturalness. It touched not my schoolboy's heart with its ardor for Guide and Breton, and Breton, but that innate taste that we French never lose for a moment beyond all changes of fashion for the art of the moralist. Ah, Alex. it's Jonathan's favorite movie. It happened one night. <laughs> it is a great movie. But yeah, it was... Uh, I think that he... There, there was kind of getting a, a sourness towards American films, and then for whatever reason, this rerun of It Happened One Night kind of like sparked Romer to start thinking about films in a different way because it's just so kind of raw and fun but there is a lot of that morality built into it happened one night you have the walls of Jericho you have this kind of budding romance throughout the whole thing uh which I think is really interesting uh yeah that, it's, that's, it's that's very much film. a movie about lines being respected and lines being crossed yeah set up by the characters involved yeah and I think it'll be fun at the end of this episode to talk about other films that we find Romer-esque that are more influenced by Romer than ones that influenced him. Because I, I have a list that I'm sure you have some on, on the top of your head. Yeah, yeah. I will say I'm one of the, the things I read when working on uh, this show was, or that I was very happy I read when I was working on the show, was the idea that they were all built off of Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans. Because I watched all of them without knowing that. And now knowing that, I feel better about the French people as a whole. Because at first, I just thought it was like Romer's take on who the French were. And I was like, wow, the French have problems. Um, but knowing it's specifically that setup over and over again, I'm like, oh, okay. Okay, it's meant to be this specific setup. I get that. Yeah, I don't know. I saw an, I saw an interview where he was saying that he didn't, 
he didn't intentionally make it about a guy choosing between two women over and over again, but kind of realized that thread later on. But that yeah. interview was when he was pretty old, so I don't know what yeah. the truth is. Yeah, right. But it definitely re- recurs over and over. And the gist of it is typically that the the plot matters a lot less than what the characters think about the decisions they make in the plot and whether they or not they live up to their own standards. Right. But with it's that, about internal I think states. Yeah. With that, I think it's time to jump into the films themselves. Jason, take it away. My Night at Mods from 1969. Jean-Louis, a Catholic engineer in his early 30s, lives by a strict moral code and immerses himself in mathematics and the philosophy of Blaise Pascal. After spotting the delicate Francois at mass, he vows to make her his wife. Although when he spends an unplanned night at the apartment of the bold divorcee Maud, his rigid standards are challenged. All right, Jonathan, I think... So when you read the short films, this is a distinction we'll have to make um, with each of these movies. But when you read the short stories, not the short films, the short stories, uh, they all are essentially narrated because you have uh, the inner voice well, that's of what the stories the protagonist. are, Alex. They, yes, exactly. They all have the protagonist as the narrator of their own story um, where they think about their actions and reflect on their actions. But not all of the films have narration as... I think one of them doesn't. Uh, I think... I think Claire's Knee is the only one that doesn't have any. Some of them have less than others. Yeah. I think Suzanne's career doesn't have any. No, it definitely does. It ends on... At the end, he looks at oh, her. Oh, yeah, at the end it does, yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, there was yeah. a, it was sprinkled in there. It's mostly, yeah, that's mostly absent. But yeah, there's, there's the if you read the, the short stories first, it'd be almost hard to conceive the films without narration because the internal states are so important. But yeah. it does, there is some variance into how narrated they are, and that is important. But My Nights at Mods, My Night I at mean, Mods is To be fair, Claire's Knee is, is narrated diegetically yes <laughs> we'll get that's into fair. that yeah that's fair um but yeah uh my night at mods is narrated which is very important we have a uh, a protagonist who is super conflicted about all of the ideas of like who he has been and who he is which i find very interesting he's maybe he's probably the protagonist who's set up to be like the most in a state of change. Um, yeah. Like he's, he's very consciously going from being his past to his future. And he's thinking about who he's going to be in the future versus how he was in the past. So he's but it's maybe, a conscious confliction too. Cause yeah. he, he acknowledges that he, you know, he has an ideal for himself that he doesn't always meet, which is part of, he's kind of, accepted that even though he's still trying to meet his ideal at all yes. times. Yeah. 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 It's also important to note that this is the final uh black and white film. Um if you watch the whole series of six films, you'll see the production budget slowly tick up <laughs> over the course of the movies. Um did you yeah, notice the n- discrepancy here though? So uh, there's what? My Night at Mods is the third sequentially of the moral tales. But mm-hmm, it's not mm-hmm. the third one that they made because no one would produce My Night and Mods, as I mentioned before. So they actually did La Collectionneur first, uh, oh, really? even though it's the fourth film. But I never noticed that. 
I actually, I watched them. I was watching them based on the date in Criterion. And then mm -hmm. I was like, wait a second. Did I mess something up? Because I was supposed to watch My Night at Mods first. So I actually watched them in the chronological order and not in the Tales order. But, yeah. my, but the first three are supposed to be in black and white. And My Night at Mods is supposed to be specifically in black and white because a lot of it takes place, or at least the, the guy's hometown is in Pascal's hometown and uh, mm -hmm. or where he's living and that town apparently a lot of the houses are built with volcanic rock and so a lot of the houses are black it's like a town without color and so uh romer really wanted to accentuate that with the black and white and then also using a lot of black and white in the clothes and stuff like that and i would also say that this film is one of the most it's got one of the it's it's one of the more talky of all these talky films, and it's, it's it's the most heavily built on a discussion, like the central. Lot, but scene it's a, it's a very black so and white morality that's laid out here yeah. too. I was going to say this is probably the film that presents the clearest idea of what a moral tale is supposed to be. Um, yeah. it, it has the it has the character probably with the strongest sense of self as conflicted as he is he really thinks he's probably the most it, coming back to that french word moralist which is a, a noun uh, about which describes somebody who thinks in that way thinks about the states of being and what should and shouldn't be in a state of being um is probably fits that description the best is the protagonist of my night at mods um and it kind of becomes like the cornerstone, especially because it's in the center of the whole series for that matter, I think. Yeah. Um, and it also Not to mention, has, we have a Hitchcockian blonde and brunette dichotomy. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um, and yeah, it definitely has, of all, they're all talking movies. Eric Romer loves his long winded discussions about um, relations between men and women and just banalities of life that kind of all play into the central theme. Um, and clearly relate to what the character is going through. But this one probably has the longest one. It's like, yeah. it's like most of the movie is literally his night at mods is this discussion. I love uh, the criterion Blu-ray feature that names every scene. Um, it does break up that into a few scenes, but you're just like on that series of scenes for 90% of the movie. It's crazy how much yeah. the movie is that, but it works really well. Um, now, the interesting thing to me is that when I read it in the short story form and watched it, I was like, wow, this center section here, the literal night at Mott's, feels the most like a stage play to me because of the way it's set up. And when you read the short story, especially, it literally reads like um, like stage direction at the very beginning when they're describing the setup of the room. Um, you so can that's almost because that's that's one of the reasons that no one would produce this because the producers kept looking at it and saying this is just a filmed stage play no one wants to see this and sending it back and uh romer says that that was partially his fault because he you know obviously the dialogue is is a huge portion of his uh interest in making films but he would just leave out a lot of dialogue even though he was also very hitchcockian in the way that he would do his storyboarding and planning out ahead of time uh, what he calls decoupage uh, and but he wouldn't put that in the script so there wouldn't be descriptions of shots and like what people are doing and what things are happening which is very important so Romer is very uh, aware of the fact that his films 
are somewhat theatrical, but he also is aware that the films are specifically made as films for a reason. And the way that the film medium uh, accentuates the themes are all done very intentionally. Yeah. And what the other thing I found interesting is that I've read that Romer's conception of film was that it was a medium far closer to the classic novel format than it was closer to a theatrical stage play. So right. it's always interesting to me when his when when his his um his films almost read like stage plays in the way that they're contained and built around dialogue and performance. Um which real quick, the performances in not my night at mods are very, very good. You can tell yeah. the actors clicked with the material. It worked well. Um, but I think the better way to explain it and look at it versus this is a stage play. Why does it look like a stage play? Is that Romer is the specific way in which Romer uses the film medium and why he likes the long conversations he does and the long takes he does and the minimal scene changes that he does. Um, he loves giving you time to think. He's got films right. about very smart people and he makes movies for people who he soon assumes are going to engage with his material in an intelligent way. And he wants to essentially invite the audience to have a night at mods as well. He wants you to feel like you're almost at the table thinking about thinking and reacting to what the other characters are saying and doing. Um, because while the characters he's portraying are more least, he also kind of expects the audience to be more least as well, at least for the duration of the film and to think about that state of things. And I also think the most, maybe the most important thing here is that it's, unavoidable when you do engage with these movies to not have an opinion on the morality of these characters. And it's not going to be concrete because the characters are so complex and conflicted, but right. it's almost impossible to not have an opinion on these, on these people. Um, whether it's good or bad, I found myself not really liking most of the characters, but finding them fascinating in all of these movies. Um, but it's it's ironically a lot of shades of gray and uh, giving the audience the task of delineating them in a movie that's shot in black and white. Yeah. And just one point on the narration, because Romer talks about the narration, too, in that uh, interview with his producer. Uh, and he says <laughs> he said there are two reasons for doing narration. One is that it was somewhat in vogue at the time. And he cites Billy Wilder. He said, you know, Billy Wilder had a film that used narration. We're like, you can say Sunset Boulevard. Like, we know what you're talking about. Uh, and then, uh, which I, I'm assuming it was Sunset Boulevard, especially because Sunset Boulevard uh, also features Eric von Stroheim, uh, of whom he took his name from. Um, and the other reason is because, like you said, it's, it's a way of getting the character's uh, mental state on film in a way that is somewhat inherent to the literary format. Um, and he also cites silent films and the way that silent films would use intertitles not only for dialogue, but also to describe characters' states of minds and states of emotions. 
and he felt that that had been lost through the talkies, where now you're only hearing what characters say and not exactly what they're thinking. Um, and so he's using a lot of that for uh, the way he uses narration in these films. Um, but, but yeah, what you find as you listen to both the narration and the dialogue of the characters is uh, that a, a huge point of these films is where the, the words and the actions of the characters diverge, right? Because so much of it is about some amount of self-justification that is always undermined by what the characters actually end up doing. And as you compare the two, what the character thinks that they're doing and why and what they're actually doing, and then you are making presumptions on the real why, you start to get a more full understanding of who the characters are. But it, it means that he has no two-dimensional characters in these films. Like, all of these characters have so many layers and so many contradictions that they feel very much like uh, real people. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's one of the things that makes them relate so well. Where the rubber hits the road, man. <laughs> you know, yeah. you, it's it's one thing to define your own morality and then you take it up for a spin. Um, and I think one of the reasons My Night at Mons is such a good example of the moral tales is that you constantly see him contradict his own morality every time he decides to stay at Mods, even though he knows. And he sets it out very clearly at the beginning that there's no way he doesn't see a future for him with mod because he doesn't, he doesn't do one night stands and he doesn't foresee him marrying anyone who isn't Catholic. And so there's nothing for him to do with mod, but he continues to stay as flirtatious as mod is being. And every single time he does it, every single time he takes a move closer, he contradicts himself. Um, but also like, you get why he's doing it as a human person, especially yeah. one who's so lonely. Like you get why he's doing those things, but man, it, it's again, like when these movies are at their best, they kind of make you want to scream at the people in the movie. Like get your, get your well, head together. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. There's a lot of like cockiness in a lot of the, the protagonists where it's like they can see the temptation in front of them. And then they just tell themselves that they're better than that, that they can overcome it. And you, so the, the other interesting thing is that Romer's films are, most of them are ultimately optimistic, uh, but most of them escape by the skin of their teeth. Um, and so there is that, that element of ultimately overcoming the temptation, but just barely. And in this case, it's actually in spite of himself, because he, by the time that he succumbs to the temptation, she's done with him. And so she, she's the one that, that kind of ruins it for him or saves him, however you want to look at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the, yeah, that's a good way to think of it. At the very end, like, he does I'm not thinking about the set. very end. I'm thinking about the, the one moment where he turns to her in the morning and he's about to give in. And then she's like, nope, you're too indecisive. I can't handle you. Uh, which honestly good for you because that's <laughs> the for, that's the climax you, that's mod. the real climax yeah. um but good then for you mod yeah uh so then it gets way more complicated because we're like okay he had a he had a moral slip and uh 
but he he ultimately kind of got out of it, sort of. Um, and then we get the second night. So there's two nights, and I think that this film is so so well structured because we have the night at Mods, yeah, and then and we have, have the, the night, night at, at the other girls at Francoise, yeah. yeah. Um, and they're so so completely different. Like the whole point is for you to play spot the difference, which is everything in the way that they interact. And so you kind of have this interesting uh, archetypal Madonna horror dichotomy. And uh, so you see Maude as being the, the flirtatious temptress and then Francois being the, the kind of perfect Catholic woman of his dreams who uh, is, is, you know, she's always covered up the whole time and they're sleeping in separate rooms and all that. Um, and, but then we learn, oh, she's not the perfect angel that we think that she is. Uh, and he has yeah, to come to terms with that. She has a more that. flawed moral background than Maude does. Yeah, she does. I mean, and, and directly in relation to Maude. Directly which is, relate, yeah. <laughs> which is, is just like, a, a one, a very neat plot twist. Like, yeah, dovetail your plots when you can. Yeah. Uh, and two, it's really uh, tight. perfectly points out that... that the difference there and almost makes it feel silly, silly, right? Like he would rather be with the girl who had an affair with a married man just because she's Catholic rather than the woman whose husband cheated on her, even though she isn't Catholic, like the, the, the superficiality of the morality in that moment feels real and kind of, but we know to that character it's not because to him it's a deep central part of who he is. So it can't be uh, contravened, but as the audience, it feels weird. Yeah. And I feel like the difference is that, you know, with Francois, they're both going in the same direction. Like they're on the same trajectory in which, they both have the same ideal of marriage and yet they both have fallen short of their own ideal of marriage. Like he said, he's had his own flings and stuff like that in the past. Um, and, and obviously he doesn't realize until the very, very last minute what it means specifically to Maud. But the point is they've both had, you know, not lived up to the ideal, but they both have the same ideal and so that's why he can't be with Maud because she does not have the same ideal. So it's not a good long-term trajectory. Uh, but I think that what, what the big takeaway is, is that his night at Maud's in which is kind of, as far as the story is concerned, his last big, uh, moral, uh, slip up or whatever is what gives him the compassion to accept uh, Francois at the end. Yeah, it's interesting that he has to, he, he almost chooses for Francois's sake to present himself as morally dirtied in a sense. Right. Because instead of saying that nothing happened, her. he just says that was my last fling. Mm-hmm. And that is essentially to make... He does that to make Francois feel more okay about everything, to put himself on that level, even though he did meet his own moral brief, which is fascinating. Um, And also, 
in the moment, totally understandable, which is so weird. And, and, and that's one of the things about the moral tales is that everything everyone does is so contradictory, but also you get it. Like you get what they do. Um, yeah. I'm also looking at the outline right now and see that Claire's knee is next. So I want to say real quick that not everything everyone does is totally understandable. Some of it's just freaking weird, but uh, in my night at mods, that we're not that even moment, talking about la collection year. Yeah, we're not going to talk about that one. That one's weird. <laughs> that is the the standout oddball. Um, that that one had the people in it who I just did not like the most. Like yeah, everyone in that in in uh the collector. That's, that's what I, I believe it translates to, and it's like the only one still in French, and I don't know why. Um, is insanely spiteful so spiteful yeah. and kind of hateful towards each other and it just is weird and distancing um as fascinating as it is to watch them interact yeah so for for each of the uh moral tales i kind of boiled them down because they're they're basically each one of them is is a is a variation on a cage match between a virtue and a vice or or a handful of virtues and vices right and so my, my summary of my night at mods is something like temptation begets compassion to spite self-righteousness because he's well on the track to thinking himself high and mighty for overcoming his moral flaws. But again, that temptation is what gives him the compassion to accept the moral flaws of his wife, even though his ideal is for everyone to be morally perfect and living up to their own ideals. But he can't, he can't hold that with his wife because he doesn't live up to it himself. And so that gives him the ability to, uh, to continue to live with her and to, yeah, present himself as worse than he is for her sake. Yeah. yeah Although I no. would say that it's, it's not completely inaccurate for him to say that Maud was his last fling because he did have that intention of compromising decidedly an emotional fling even though nothing right. physical technically took place like it definitely crosses right. that line but i think is what, I, yeah he compromised himself either way yeah yeah exactly and that's part of it's even revealing that he doesn't really consider it to be his last fling he just says it is because then in his mind Flings can't be purely emotional. There, or even though he said he can't, he can't have a one night stand because there's no emotional, uh, there's emo right. no emotional component. But he effectively has an emotional one night stand without the physical component. Um, but yeah, there's it's essentially built off a series of what if he just contradicts everything he says, um, yeah. which is fascinating. And heck, even the author they talk about, Pascal. They talk about how he changes his opinions and contradicts himself in his own work over the course of his life. And if yeah. you read him in this book, it sounds like he thinks one thing. But if you read this other book by him, it sounds like a different thing. Um, and then the way that that uh, Jean-Louis is changing his mind about Pascal all the time. He's like, well, yeah, I used to admire him and now I'm rereading him and I don't know. And um, One last thing I want to say about My Night at Mods that I think is relevant to all of these is and also relevant to the style of the, the conversational style is that something really interesting comes through all these films, which is an element of Romer showing this intimacy that is inherent in confidant, 
dantism, if that's a word. But this idea that Jean-Louis feels so comfortable with Maud because they, uh, they communicate on the same intellectual plane, if not exactly the same moral plane. Uh, but he ends up confiding a lot in her. And a lot of these films, there's this element of the man taking a female confidant and that, that kind of bearing of his inner soul is part of what gives him a uh, physical draw in addition to an emotional draw to her. And so there's, there's this interesting danger in, the, in being too free and revealing with your inner self to someone else uh, because that's, that's part of this. It's not separate from the physical attraction of these temptation situations. Yeah. Yeah, no. <sighs> Never moved to Claremont Fremont. That's all I'm saying. Or France, apparently. Don't move to an Eric Rommer movie. You'll be smart but miserable. Uh, maybe there's more no, no more accurate theme for the six more tales than if you want to be miserable, overthink everything and be really intelligent. They don't, they don't all end up miserable. Like I said, they, they have no, they a don't. more optimistic outcome most of the time than most yeah. of, than a lot of other similar types of films that would end up with a very nihilistic ending. Yeah. We've talked about films like that before, but these, yeah. they usually end up with some, some glimmer of moral yeah. victory. They, they return, they always end up returning to the first woman. Yeah. Um, Claire's knee is a little more but, complicated yeah. though. So there, there is there. I was saving this originally for the end, but before we get to Claire's knee, cause I feel like the location of Claire's knee, it's a pretty darn good example of this concept, but these films all are incredibly, incredibly bourgeois. Yeah. Um, and I mean that in like the traditional sense of like comfortably middle class, like you don't have to worry about money. And in the po- what that means in like the post World War II world is that you can afford to go to fancy lo- locations and have a nice um, have a nice vacation or go visit a lake. Um, none of the people in these movies, with a few very specific exceptions, are really worried about uh, money or jobs. Um, and and even in the earlier films where the characters are a little more poor. They're like students, but students who are studying to become like a lawyer or a pharmacist, like a job that will pay them good money. Um, So they're upwardly mobile at the very least. But with that idea of like these bourgeois comforts also comes the idea that you're freed enough from the day-to-day grind of needing to work to survive that you have the time and space in your mind to be a more least. If you're just, if you're a subsistent, farmer or if you're working every day in a factory and hoping you can keep the lights on you probably don't have the time to have these deep moral conundrums you're just trying to eat enough to not die that Um, uh, that feels reductionist to me i mean every no matter what stage of life you're in you're not exempt from the temptation to covet your neighbor's wife you know (laughs) oh well i'm not saying you don't actually face the moral conundrums that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying the way that these people, the people in these films shape almost their whole identity around intellectually tackling yeah. these conundrums. Um, like take, uh, take a look at like La Collectinus where the guy's like whole drive is to like morally do as little as possible for most, well, of, most of the movie. He's explicitly a dandy. That's kind of, <laughs> that's a pretty specific situation. 
Yeah, yeah. Or uh uh even even the way in my night at mods, like this guy clearly doesn't have to worry about yeah. money. He's been around all these places. Um, and now he's essentially bored with his work and just has time to think about this. And he's very consciously like, now I guess it's time for a wife, but morally, which wife should I get? Um, like there, there's a distinct, what I'm trying to get at is that there's a distinct lack of tangible, like, uh, existential struggle and more of like an identity struggle. Yeah. And like the, 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 the ability to have enough time to cope with one's, to struggle with one's identity is, it's, is distinctly a kind of like bourgeois thing. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying it distinctly shows that you don't have, there's other things that you're clearly not worrying about. And maybe, maybe one way to put it is if you're bourgeois enough to have the luxury to self-justify all of your moral failings yeah yeah it's that's something a great like way that to put it yeah, yeah 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 you can you can morally if you can if you have a, enough time to think through all of your actions and have a moral accounting for them then yeah, yeah you're definitely living it up a little because yeah, otherwise is, you just you have your moral failings and then you feel guilt which is a natural consequence of that and uh, not always a bad thing yeah 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 a lot of Heck, a lot of what happens in these movies can be considered characters trying to escape their own guilt. Yeah. Um, and part of it, too, or is just culpability or something. Yeah. And part of it, too, is Romer's style, which, aside from being long takes of long conversations, tends to involve one or more beautiful young people in a exotic or uh, nice looking location. Yeah. Um, I think, like, Suzanne's career might be like the one exception to that, but it, except for towards the end, because uh, the the house the character uh, the jerk friend has in the uh, I don't know what was going on in Suzanne's career with their living situations. Yeah, because you know what with Suzanne's career when I read it, I it expected like a more sumptuous house. Like it sounded like um, his friend had Guimond, I think had like a really nice house. And then you watch the movie and I think it might've just been a fact factor of the budget, but yeah, you watch I the movie like and it's not a very nice house, but I think it's, I think it was intended to be. Um, but I digress. I just wanted to bring that out there because the next one takes place in such a bourgeois location, um, at a nice mountain lake resort town. <laughs> so yeah. let's move on to there. Jason, take us away. Claire's knee from 1970. Why would I tie myself to one woman? Asks Jerome, though he plans to marry a diplomat's daughter by summer's end. He spends his July at a lakeside boarding house, nursing crushes on the 16-year-old Laura and more tantalizingly her long-legged blonde older half-sister, Claire. Bearing her knee on a ladder under a blooming cherry tree, Claire unwittingly incites a moral crisis for Jerome. All right, Alex, Claire's knee is... uh very interesting as you said stated very beautiful uh on a lot of levels um and also one that i would say has a one of the less optimistic endings because the guy just is a uh he ends up being a chronic self-justifier and never learns his lesson <laughs> but the audience yeah. learns their lesson yeah no i don't 
like the adults in this movie. <laughs> I don't like them at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, you've got, on the one hand, you've got the main character. What's his name? Is his name Claude? I don't remember. Um, Most of the characters in these films are their own names. Okay, not this one. Uh, the guy's name is Jerome. Yeah. Oh, so, the, okay. Actually, that's, I'm glad you brought that up. The first five movies are all named after a woman who appears in the movie. And then the last one isn't, which I find interesting. But, um, yeah, so Jerome. So Jerome, I'm rooting for him so hard <laughs> for the first part of the movie until he gets... You just slowly lose your faith in yeah, him entirely. Yeah, yeah. And then, and then I feel like sometimes, based on some of the reviews I read, that she gets a free pass. But his friend, who's a writer, is also terrible. Okay, um, I was going to bring this up because like, this, this flies way under the radar. Doing? This okay. So explain explain your your issue because I I feel like there's an extra level that I caught at the very end. Yeah. So so this woman whose name I don't remember, but uh, Aurora, Aurora, which Aurora, is the actress. I think it's the actress's name. name. Okay. Yeah. I thought I noticed that. Okay. Her so, character's yeah. name is Aurora, the novelist. She Aurora, serves, she helps who, us out with the no narration thing. Yes, she does. But her, she is a writer, and she essentially, for the sake of her own, maybe for the sake of her own writing, maybe just because she's a sicko, I don't know. I have um, a different keeps, take on why she does this, which I didn't realize until later. Keeps prodding Claude, or I keep calling him Claude. He's not Claude, he's Jerome. Keeps prodding Jerome on this fictional plot that she has about an older man falling for an underage woman. Um in like this sneaky way, like that story she tells about him hiding the tennis ball or something like that. She's, um, she's doing keeps, inception on him before Christopher. Yeah, Nolan. <laughs> she, she's, she's like pushing him into like, Oh, wouldn't it be nice if you went and talked to that, this young woman. Cause there's this young woman who is like 16. She 16. clearly has a crush on Jerome, which by the way, that is normal. It's not weird for uh, a teenager to have, a crush on an older adult. Uh, that's pretty common. It's just you picking out like what you see and like in an adult partner. Now what's problematic is when the other person reciprocates it, that's not okay. Yeah. The responsibility yeah. is on the adult to, uh, yeah, to shut it down correctly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and honestly, uh, there's a few times where Jerome tries to do that because he's engaged and uh, he's like, actually, I'm going to Sweden to get married. But Aurora keeps freaking cutting him off in conversations and talking about other other things. Like, no, you're she not. She gives to him this. What she does yeah. is she gives him this nice little safety cushion where he can be like, oh, so if I try to kiss her, then it's just a test to see how much she likes me, and yeah. I can go back and I can tell her how I felt about the whole thing. But it's all just purely a scientific test. Yeah, yeah, which even if it was a scientific test, that's not okay. Just want to throw that out there. But yeah, Aurora essentially, not that Jerome clearly needs a lot of help by the end in self-justifying, but gives one, instigates him, and two, gives him that safety realm within to work of in his own morality uh, to pursue these weird things. First with kissing Laura, and then second with the knee not, thing. Not Aurora, um... Uh, Laura. Laura. Yeah, Laura. Sorry. Oh, that's not confusing that. at all. Um, and then second with uh, 
her stepsisters or ex stepsisters uh, knee, which is yeah. the oddest thing I've ever seen in the world. But that's the most literary more, thing I've ever seen in a film. Yeah, honestly. Yeah, right. Like, oh man, that guy is really into a knee, but he kind of gets like. I don't know. Talked into the knee thing. It's weird. No, it's very that's, weird. I'm not, that's where I'm not I feel like to. I feel like Aurora hatched a monster that kind of took on its a life of its own. Where yeah, he suddenly I, he has that whole monologue about now. You know, I'm totally over Laura, but I had an idea hypothetically. If the yeah. character in your story hypothetically uh, had this hypothetical infatuation hypothetically yeah. with a different girl's knee, then hypothetically that would be really interesting. And where do you think about that? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I'm not, by the way, trying to like say Jerome isn't at fault. Like he's definitely at fault here. He's he's a he's he's a big creep. And I'm all I'm just trying to say that Aurora is also a big creep. And they're awful people. Okay. <laughs> here's here's my take on Aurora, which I agree with everything you're saying, but I think that the motivation is revealed at the very you think end. She she likes Jerome. So I think she's protecting herself because at the very end, we learn that she's also engaged, which she has not told Jerome the entire time. But clearly, they are very comfortable together. Oh, they're so weirdly touchy-feely. It's upsetting. May have had a... Yeah, and a lot of that in these films, I can't tell if that's just a French thing or if that's... <laughs> Dude, same. <laughs> Literally, don't know. But France, so, what's going on with all the kissing? Explain. So they're very touchy-feely. They're very close friends. Maybe have a history together. But he's he's engaged and everyone knows it. She's engaged and she doesn't tell anyone. And I think she's protecting herself from a fling with Jerome because she knows she'll fall for him if she has the chance. So she throws Jerome off on a wild goose chase to protect her own self before she gets married. That's my take. I could see that, honestly. That sounds like some some it definitely sounds like something a Romer character would do. But it's so subtle because you don't learn that she's engaged until the last two seconds of the film. Yeah. 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 No, it's which really I think weird. is intentional. But you like, why wouldn't she just also tell him, hey, I'm also engaged. So nothing can go on. Does she just like really not trust herself that well? In which case, why would you spend time with this person if you don't trust yourself around them and you just want to remain engaged? I don't uh, I don't get these people's actions. It's so upsetting. Um, but that's what, what, I was talking what about is earlier, important was, is the uh, is the turmoil that she causes within Jerome. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, there's so this one has a lot of really good longing looks in it. Yeah, and like uh, it's very much the Alicia Keys song, like you're hot, then you're cold, you're yes, then you're no. I don't even know if that's Alicia Keys anymore. I just know it used to play at the pool all the time. Um, but so like, here's what. One minute he's cold on the idea, and the next he's like, oh, but what if I do? Oh, but what yeah. if I don't? Oh, but what if I do? And that's reflected very well in the way he stares at something or ignores it. And I think this is important because this is also an aspect of what cinema is, right? And where the role of showing versus telling falls within these films, because they're both very important. Like, you can't, obviously, cinema is about showing. And you want to show more than you tell. But there's also an aspect of the telling that informs the showing, right? There's there's no way to completely understand how much self-justification is happening in Jerome's head if all we get are his desirous looks at Claire and no no thoughts. 
uh, about that. Um, and it's interesting. There's there's a quote by Marshall McLuhan, who's a media theorist, about uh, who who's talking about different media and stuff like that. And he talks about how words, like the written word, has a way of uh, it, it's a limited form of communication in the sense that you can write paragraphs about what is essentially just a sigh in real life communication. And I think what's so interesting about Romer is that he writes the paragraphs and shows the sigh. So you get, you get the look at the knee and you get the pontification about what the look at the knee means, uh, which is deceptive. And the, the, what the look at the knee actually means is somewhere between the look and the pontification. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that they, Hmm. And I think it, cause what we're essentially getting at is that this is the only one without full, without any like voiceover narration. Right. Well, I, I feel like that's irrelevant because it essentially between the conversations between Jerome and Aurora, you get the same effect. There's, it's oh, just on screen. That's what I'm saying is that like narration on Jerome's part would, uh, would essentially defeat the purpose, right? Like it would, you, what's created in that moment isn't just the moral conflict within Jerome, but our reflection on the moral comment, uh, conflict within Jerome. And if we're getting his feedback instantaneously, then we don't have the tension of like, oh, what did he think? Uh, what did I he not think? Saying. We have to wait for it to be revealed in the conversation later with Aurora. And the other thing we're we're seeing is that it's um, a colder, more calculated response because it's not in the moment. So we're not getting his thoughts in the moment. We're getting them after the yeah. fact, after he's and, had time to cook up his own self-justification. Yeah. And there's, there is an element of, again, I think the element of the confidant makes a difference too because Aurora becomes the confidant. Which is also why I think it's important if you want, if you think about the film with this view that Aurora is protecting herself because there's that confidant draw between them. Uh, and the way that you justify yourself to another person is very different than the way you justify yourself to yourself. So, yeah, I do think that there is an interesting difference between, yeah, <laughs> between a conversational narration and a non-diegetic narration. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um unlike the lack of any non-diegetic music. Right. Uh except for was it this? No, I think it was La Collectionneur. There's uh they needed music for the credits or something and uh and they were going to write this music piece or whatever, but they were at the um Eric Romer's producer's house. And he had this drum hanging on the wall, and so they, Eric was like, "No, we'll just uh, we'll just do something like this." And he just started banging on the drum, and then the producer guy went and got a pot and started banging on it. And then they took it to the editors and were like, "We want something kind of like this for the credits." And they're like, "This is great. We're gonna put this in there." <laughs> and so there's this weird, there's this weird drum banging, pot banging music at the end of La Collectionneur, which uh, is completely appropriate for that weird, strange film. Yeah, we'll just. Uh I mean, when, when the client says we want something like this, why not just take this and put it in there? Just do it. Because they're going to complain it. about it if you don't. Yeah. Uh, but I will say that Romer does make a very intentional choice to not use 
non-diegetic music or score or whatever, because he he talks about the fact that that is it's it's a form of manipulation essentially, and especially in these films where the entire point of watching the film is for the audience to be making judgments on the fly based on their observations of these people's interactions with each other. The more you influence that, the more you're kind of cheating the the impact of the film. So you want to give the audience as much freedom to take their interpretations in the direction that they're supposed to go on their own because then it's then it's a more well-earned satisfaction at the end rather than like we've guided you way this whole way and if you thought that you know this was a happy moment but we play sad music then you'll know exactly what to think about it yeah 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 that's just uh romer's styles he doesn't want and also why so it's many again making the audience ended yeah it's about it's about an intellectual engagement with the audience yeah. That's his that's his jam. That's his jamboree. That and a pot and a drum. Um <laughs> but yeah, yeah, he just, he's not going to give you an answer. The point is that you come up with a response on your own. And more often than not, it's something along the lines of how would I act in that situation, which effectively right. turns you into a moralist. Um which is his goal. That's his agenda. One one last thing about Clarsney is uh the in terms of the location very beautiful, but there's also oh, yeah. gorgeous two, location. two very specific elements to the location um, that play a uh, almost kind of a, a literary kind of subtextual role, which is that they wanted to film it at exactly a certain time of year. So there's two two important uh, fl- floral uh events in the film one is the blooming of the roses at the very beginning when he starts to fall for laura and the so the roses are just in bloom and they're picking the roses uh which is kind of a uh metaphorical uh take for again laura is 16 she's just kind of coming into womanhood etc uh so that's that's a very traditional kind of literary moment and then the other one is when he becomes obsessed with claire's knee what are they doing they're picking cherries that have just ripened and so again there's this very literary thing but romer was very specific about filming right when the cherries are blooming right when the rose bushes were blooming and he there's actually a legend that he went to the location and planted this rose bush at the exact spot that he wanted and timed it out so that it would bloom exactly when he needed it to which I think is apocryphal, but it's a great story. Still not as intense as that uh, movie that was shot entirely at sunset. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Days that. of Heaven. You got like five minutes of shooting a day. We've done a lot of episodes. That's the point. Uh, anyway, yeah. let's move on to Love in the Afternoon from 1972. Jason, take us away. Love in the Afternoon from 1972. Though happily married to the adoring Helene and expecting a second child with her, the thoroughly bourgeois executive Frederick cannot banish from his mind the attractive Paris woman he sees every day. His flirtations and fantasies remain harmless until the appearance at his office of Chloe, an audacious, unencumbered old flame. All right, Jonathan, I think this one might be my favorite of the six. It feels the neatest. It feels the cleanest in its presentation. Um, 
I'm gonna, got, I'm gonna say something that contradicts what you have written here. Uh, go for it. Or that you had written earlier. Uh, I feel like it's it's the uh, ten- tenderest of the six. It's it's I don't a think uh, that uh, yeah. Or so for clarification, earlier in the notes before I just changed all of my opinions to a discussion <laughs> of morals. Yeah. Uh, in our outline, I had written that I thought this was the cruelest one. Um, and I don't think that those are mutually exclusive, Jonathan. I think they, they both occur. Okay. I just, uh, feel like you're putting your sympathies in the wrong place. (laughs) It's not, and it's not, I don't think it's not that I'm sympathetic towards Chloe. I think she's acting very badly. Towards the self-declared homewrecker? Yeah. She's, she's not a good person at all, at all, at all. But I think it wasn't until the second time through this, the story when I, because I read it and then I watched it. And the second time through the story, it wasn't until the end that I noticed how much, I don't think it was intentional. I think it was an incidental cruelty, uh, that how much um, our lead character, who I don't remember any of the names, just French dude. Um, Frederick. Had, yeah, there you go. Had uh, essentially been kind of like, unintentionally dragging Chloe along? No, no. (laughs) Maybe it's because I've only watched it once, but I feel like that's completely backwards. She she states in the film that her intention is to get him to cheat on his wife. Like, this is her ploy. This is her game that he almost fell for. Yeah, and he keeps encouraging it is kind of the thing by continuing to engage in... Okay, I'll agree with that. He he never he never actively draws himself out of the game. Yeah, because he, again, it's that end. hubris of I can see the temptation, but I'm better than it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I'll, I'll I I concede the point that she is definitely like trying to get him into this because that would be advantageous for her. Like the whole movie, she's it's just fun for her. It's not even, she's she's kind of like sponging off other people. And like, you even get the backstory that, uh, he, the reason he knows her is because she like tore the heart out of, uh, his, his friend back in the day. And then in Um, the middle of the film, she leaves and is like, yeah, I had a fling with this guy and just ditched him for some other dude. And then, uh, ditched him to come back here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think to some extent, I think the the protagonist thinks he's kind of like, and not unrightfully so, I will say, uh, morally superior to Chloe. Um, but it's at the point where he continues to get closer and closer to her and some of their like right. decidedly physically intimate moments that never go anywhere. Um, again, is it a French down. thing? Is it just... <laughs> I think I don't think that one's a French thing. I think they were definitely yeah. like in all those instances about to get it on, and then they didn't because uh, he drew back from the edge. Um, and I think the least cruel thing he did in the movie was at the very end where he shuts it down, leaves, and never comes back. That's like yeah. that's that's the climactic moment. One, it's a really nice climactic moment. It's very Romer esque in how unsaid and unfocused on it is. But I love in that since we're already there, we just like went full force into this film. But that the moment that saves him is I I love basically the way that I thought about it in my head is is 
there's, there's a grace in echoes and reflections. So the moment where he sees himself taking his shirt off and he remembers he the game on himself and he remembers the game, the echo of himself playing with his child. And he's like, what the heck am I doing? And just books yeah. it out of there. Uh, yeah. It's yeah. such a nice moment. It's everything that is said at the end of my night at mods is just felt in love in the afternoon. And I think this yeah. is something you notice going through Romer's films is it's, it's almost like we talked about with Godard, where he starts by explaining a lot and he ends by showing a lot. There's still a lot of talking in Love in the Afternoon, but it's less moralizing. Not it's as less much preachy. as mods. Yeah. Yeah. It's more it's more people dialogue and less kind of preachy moralizing dialogue. But you yeah. feel all the morals underneath it uh, yeah. in the actions. I felt like mods was the most raw essence of what the moral films was trying to be. Right. And it's the only uh, one that's explicitly religious too, which helps. Yeah, I feel like Claire's knee was probably the best visually shot and maybe the best acted. And then love in the afternoon is just the best example overall of what a really good moral tale could be. Like it's, it's decidedly my favorite. It's uh it's a it's combination of all of the six. Yeah. It has elements. And actually to put that uh, on display, did you notice that Romer has that moment where all the girls from the other five tales come in? Is that in the moment where he has the talisman? Yes, where he has his little dream sequence, which is which I think you noted in here. The only instance of fantasy or dreaming or daydreaming or whatever in any of these were, films. Were those <laughs> all the women from the previous movies? Were they, yeah. the, they the actresses? There was, uh, yeah, there was Laura and Claire and Maud and uh, I, I thought think the Francois. one was Laura. Yeah, yeah, I did notice one because I watched Claire's Knee and Love in the Afternoon on the same day. I was like, that's Laura. I'm pretty yeah. sure it's Laura. Did he reuse her? I um, think he goes I, through all of them, which I is guess, so, yeah, so sense. nice. Yeah, He uses all of them. Yeah. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing, too, as long as we're talking about that now, which is he he uses this prologue where the prologue is very long, uh, but he uses a prologue in this film and in La Collectionneur, but really the prologue is there to establish the character. It's to establish their, their inner state of being, who they are, what their situation is. And so the prologue ends with this dream sequence where he has this talisman that can let him kind of win the will over any woman. Um, because he starts by talking about how he's married, he's happily married and, yeah, he starts to see women differently now. And he's like, I don't even know if I could seduce a woman if I tried or whatever. But sometimes I have this daydream where I have this talisman that lets me, uh, you know, w like er erase the, the will of other women in order to, uh, you know, win them over or whatever. Uh, except the only one, the, the girl who played Laura is the only one who just like ditches him. And even in his daydream, which I think is hilarious. Um, uh, but it's, it's again, it's showing us that he, he has this hubris of being, uh, you know, very staunchly devout to his family, but he still has these daydreams about what would happen if, if he could w have control of the will of other women, which is ironic because Chloe ends up being the one who destroys his will. <laughs> she has the talisman over him, ultimately, 
and uh, he doesn't admit it until he is almost uh, lost the game. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because that, I mean, honestly, it starts off with him kind of in the prologue having a relative, just, I don't know, just like daytime fantasies and all relatively innocent of like alternate timelines for himself, essentially. Yeah. Uh, that he never, never moves on. But the, diff- the everything changes when he finds a woman who very explicitly wants to make that, that, uh, that dream of reality to her, her advantage as well. Yeah. Um, and then I have a question for you, Jonathan at, at the very end of the movie and keeping in mind, I don't remember if it's mentioned in the film. I know it's mentioned in the book that, uh, and it's not from a trustworthy source either, uh, that Chloe mentions that she spots, um, our main character's wife, uh, in Paris one day yep, with another man strolling around. And at the very end of the movie, when he comes home to her, she's crying and it doesn't seem to be about anything he's done. Yeah, um, 100%. That she had some kind of dalliance as well or some kind of temptation? No. Well, okay, here's my take is that she was literally about to, like, I think she was in the same situation as him. She had been talking with the other professor and I think he was coming over that day. Or Oh, you think he was coming over that day? I think he was coming because she he walks in and she seems surprised that it's him that shows up and she's all mm-hmm. like nervous and shook. And then or she was thinking about going out to him because he's like, is anyone here? Because he starts to I mean, he doesn't explicitly think that, but he's like, you know, just making sure. And uh, and yeah, she says, nope, no one's coming till five. But yeah, that that last moment is the is the most tender and uh, cathartic moment of all the films. Because also there's an interesting uh, maturation throughout the films where we start with The Bakery Girl. We start with Bakery Girl and Suzanne's career, which both focus around college students. Uh, My Night at Mods is unmarried guys about to get married. Claire's knee and La Collectionneur are both engaged men. And Love in the Afternoon is the only one where the protagonist is actually married already. And so there's this progression of the way that temptation comes to men specifically uh, through these different life stages. And I think love in the afternoon, it's like the, um, the, the constancy, the, the fidelity is what wins out in the end uh, in a really beautiful way. Yeah. Honestly, at the end, the way they were both tempted and came back to each other was kind of sweet and nice they were like they okay, just we fall our- sobbing into each other's yeah. arms they 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 both strayed from the path but they came back to it before they fell off and that is uh notable and honestly much and honestly fairly realistic to the temptation that exists in actual humans on a day-to-day yeah. basis yeah it's it's such a good yeah combination of of all the all the previous films. And I think one, one other thing that I felt in love in the afternoon is that this is, (laughs) this is going to sound like a double entendre and it kind of is, but it's not supposed to be, is that I feel like he takes the Hitchcockian idea of there's no terror in the bang, only in the anticipation of it. And he stretches (laughs) that out into a full film, but you know what I mean? Like you're just waiting. It is all anticipation. 
I mean, that's but, that's what he's enjoying at the start of the movie too, is the anticipation and the thinking of what if. But he's right. not really actually. He discovers at the end he's not actually after any bang that isn't his wife. Yeah, if that makes sense. Um, I think it does. Uh, the other, you want to know something else? I noticed, Jonathan, mm. is that turtlenecks are pretty great. <laughs> and, oh my gosh, the friggin' seventies just show up. <laughs> well, that's what I was gonna say. Was that when they were all wearing like, and I mean, everybody's wearing a freaking turtleneck in this movie. It's like a conscious choice. Um, but when they start doing it, I was one of the first thoughts in my head was that uh, if you, Jonathan, wore a turtleneck, you would look like you were in a 70s band so fast with your beard. I probably would. Like, yeah. Like so quick. Like you need to start wearing turtlenecks yesterday, my dude. <laughs> I just need to grow, grow my hair out a little bit longer to my shoulders. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. With the with the circle glasses. And I'll be good uh-huh. to go. Yep, exactly. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, yeah, but but the so the turtleneck ends up being that that kind of the vehicle for his salvation, if you want to put it that way. By the very end, um, but there's there's also another moment in insight into his uh, <laughs> his proclivity towards temptation. I suppose it, when the the uh, the casual sales girl sells him the button down shirt. Um, and he, because you specifically see two instances of him buying a shirt in one of them, it's a man who's telling him that, yeah, this, this looks great on you. You should, you should buy it. And he says, nah, it's not really my thing. And then the, the beautiful woman is like, uh, it might look good on you, whatever, take it or not. And he's like, all right, I guess I'll take it. (laughs) So you're getting this, like, he's very influenced by women, uh, because it's it's very much on his mind, but he has to just keep bringing himself back to his home. Uh, yeah, it's a good culmination thing. of the whole series, right? Because everybody's so influenced or tempted by women. Yeah. Oh, Alex, I, I have a question for you, actually, about Love in the Afternoon. I'm uh, not going to wear a turtleneck. It's not for me. That's okay. You don't have to wear a turtleneck. Uh, do you think that the effect of love in the afternoon is amplified by watching all the previous films. Do you think it, it gains by it or do you think it stands alone? Cause I feel like it, it, the catharsis is stronger having watched all six. I think it's, I think it's good solo, but I think it's richer yeah, together. that's a good word. Like they're 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 a series for a reason, and having gone through them all, they build on each other very well. Heck, even just having gone through the the short stories and writing before watching them, so I knew all six stories before I watched the Bakery Girl of Monclo. Uh, like even then, like it made the experience richer because it gives you there. I mean you don't have to watch each one to understand what happens in the others, but they're all variations on the same, same or very similar themes. Mm -hmm. So the morality of them becomes deeper. Like you, like there, I think there's like a certain element of like classism that exists in the protagonist regard for Chloe in love in the afternoon. Um, Even though it's honestly, it seems like it's Chloe's own fault that she's such a screw up. Um, 
but she's definitely lower class than he is. And I think she, he feels safer around her and her, the supposed temptation from her for that reason that's echoed in the bakery girl of Montclos. And you, the more you start to see those locations, those, uh, similarities and the variations on them, uh, I think yeah. the richer they get. Well, that's and a the good, more you get out of the experience. Yeah. And that's a good comparison too, because when, when you had originally put that love in the afternoon is cruel in kind of the way that he leaves her hanging, it's, it's a very different experience if you have the bakery girl in the context, because bakery girl is that cruel, uh, yeah, he just stands her up. It's yeah, it's, it's conquest for the sake of, uh, self catharsis. He wants self- to make him feel better after having lost out on the other girl. Yeah. The, the way, the way that the I put it girl, is the first girl reappears. Conquest to spite fate is basically what I uh, put it. But it's yeah. So she gets left for no reason, no explanation. So that that is much crueler than in Love in the Afternoon where, yeah, Chloe does not uh, do much to garner sympathy for herself. And also, I feel like she'll be fine. She's going to find some other dude to ruin later. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Chloe will be off doing Chloe things. I'm not really worried about her. Yeah. In that sense. Um, now, I mean, maybe she could sort her, sort her stuff out and figure out what she wants to do and approach something that could build she in is her one life. one of those very frustrating kind of people that I feel like most people know someone like this where it's like, um, woe is me. I don't have a job. I can't figure anything out. And then like, they get a job and lose it like two weeks later. Like, ah, well, yeah. just wasn't a good fit. No, I think after six times, it, maybe it's not the job. Yeah. Chloe, Chloe's a victim of Chloe. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Anything else. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I definitely think it's richer for that. And I think, I think the positive note that love in the afternoon ends on is a very nice cathartic moment, not just for the film, but for the whole series. Yeah, I agree. So as we move on into overall notes, uh, I'm curious which, cause I know that Romer did not necessarily translate all the stories exactly to film. I know some of them, he kind of just picked up elements or themes here and there and built a film around those. Which ones were the most consistent and which ones were the most divergent between story and film? You know, not all. Some of them have some new content in them, I would say. But like, they're all fairly much dead on. I think there's some added interaction. Like they're not. At I feel least like the he versions. said La Collectionneur was like he he picked up the the basic idea of the two guys and then the elephant vase, but then added a lot more stuff to the film. La Collectionneur has some extra conversations in the end of the movie, and uh, there's a few scenes earlier on that are added, um, like the main character kind of on his own, kind of pursuing his idea of nothing. Um, which makes sense because a lot of his uh, a lot of that is conveyed in the story by him just thinking in his own head in no location in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you get to kind of see it in the film if that makes sense, like him pursuing nothing, like when he's kind of just like staring at stuff underwater at the beach earlier That's on. That's what the whole film is: him just sitting around yeah. doing nothing. Yeah. I think he even says that he says at the beginning, like his goal is to do nothing and he's trying so hard. He's like 
working so hard to do nothing. And then his other stoner friend, he's like, he's my guru. If only I could be as as empty as my stoner friend. Yeah, like he's that you get you miss a lot of that internal narration in in that film because uh, he talks about his pursuit of nothing. And even at one point, like a lot of it becomes like how he idealizes Haley, Haley, Haiti, whatever her name is. Hi, um, day. Yeah, there you go. Uh, for being like his ideal of nothing. Um, and that's why he pursues her. But then at the end, he gets all mad in his head because he's like, actually, by pursuing her, I was I was rejecting my own idea of nothing. So it's back to pursuing nothing for me. Um, he's much more frustrating in the book. He's a weird dude. He's such a strange guy and like so hateable. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then by the end of the story, by the end of the film, he just turns into this explicitly manipulative and controlling freak. If anything is missing, it's some of the internal narration that almost becomes scenes in their own regard. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, or, or like for instance, when they introduce, Haiti in the film before he he sees her in her room with the random dude um like all of that's just like physical description in the book but they have to turn it into like actual stuff on camera so yeah. you have to do it do it like that but i will say for the most part like the the plot points that are hit which there aren't many actual plot points that are hit in right. in that film or that story are are still exist in the movie like it would be maybe from Romer's perspective because he's so nitty gritty into the guts of what goes in and out of the story in the film uh it's it's less consistent but i think from the, the outsider's weird- perspective it's just so dead it's, it's it's a pretty direct adaptation i wouldn't say it was inspired by it's a direct adaptation okay Romer also says that which i think i've we've we've come to this conclusion on the show before too which is that the the corollary between uh film and books is not between film and novels but film and short stories the only (laughs) the best way to adapt literature to film is to take a short story because a short story can be told in two hours way easier than a 300 400 page book can which is why we have so many terrible extended films uh but short stories are perfect for turning into films because they have just the right amount of content to get across within the amount of time of a film. Yeah, the uh, the short films, all, the short stories fit very well into the frameworks, and none of the films are that long. I think no. the first one's a short film; it's thirty minutes. Yeah, I think the um, I think the longest one is. It's either Claire's Knee or My Night at Mods, but one of those is the longest one. But neither tops an hour fifty, I don't think. So they're all fairly contained and short. Um, some of them sometimes feel long because you're just sitting there watching people talk. But um, it is they are fairly interesting. I would not recommend doing more than one or two in a day. Oh my god. <laughs> Um, I really like the movies, but I also see where some people come from. Uh, there, I believe there's a quote in a movie called Night Moves uh, where somebody's talking about Eric Romer movies and describes them as watching paint dry. And I get what they're saying. I don't agree with it, but I get it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because of, because of, of Romer's style, right? He's, he doesn't do a lot of close-ups. He does very long takes of wide shots. 
It's always beautiful people in beautiful locations, which is, is nice. Um, but they're normally just talking about stuff that doesn't seem congruent unless you're really paying attention to the themes. Like the movies only work if you're ingesting them in the way that Romer intends for you to ingest them. So if you're if you're here to participate and engage with the moral tale, then it it should be a good time. But if that's not your thing, you're not going to have a good time watching these movies. Um, I think they're a very fascinating approach to filmmaking and shockingly minimalist in a lot of in his style. Yeah. Right. Even, like even once he's out of his. Uh, financial constraint yeah yeah he's got i mean he he, it's a pretty simple setup right like there's not even like score (laughs) it's just whatever's happening on screen is whatever's happening on screen and it's pretty straightforward most of the time in terms of actual plot um so yeah it's it's pretty straightforward it's probably the most the simplest and most conservative style out of the french new wave group and that makes sense for what we know about romer as a person yeah. And I'm assuming that that is consistent with the many other films that he made after these. Although I know that I've watched the, some of them and yes, it is. Yeah. I know that the tales have kind of a, a bit of a style themselves. I think he moves away from narration after the tales and doesn't use he it does. as much in his later films. Um, yeah. I've watched, but, uh, I've watched the green, Re- the green Ray, which is the fifth or sixth, um, uh, comedy and proverb entry and probably one of those more famous movies that isn't inside the tales. Although it's been a minute since I've watched it. And I remember it really feeling like these movies feel, uh, with no narration. Um, a lot of focus on it on, uh, on these big wide shots and locations and people interacting and discussing life essentially. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, so I guess on that note, do you have, what what were some of the films that you started thinking about as Romeresque? Because I, not while I was watching the films, because there's not a lot of uh, one-to-one comparisons, but there's a lot of tonal influence that goes out from this. And I do think it's it's worth noting that uh, Romer himself has stated in terms of, <clears throat> when we're talking about the Calle du Cinema guys, we're talking about um, the politique de auteur, which is the auteur theory or whatever. Uh, Romer, who was on the auteur theory side, although I think it's interesting also to note that uh, Andre Bazin had an article in Calle which kind of challenged the auteur theory a little bit and said that some of the Calle guys were a little too uh, zealous about it. Um, And so he tempered it a little bit. But uh, Romer was definitely, I mean, he was one of the originators of the auteur theory. And yet he's also not one of the guys who would do a lot of cinematic cross-referencing. So he talks about how he's only thinking about his film and how to portray his film when he's making a movie. He's not thinking about how Hitchcock was do- would do it. He's like, I don't even know how Hitchcock would do it. I appreciate Hitchcock, but I have no idea what he would do in my shoes. So I'm just thinking about my own film. So he's not yeah. one to be very referential in his stories. Um, but I feel yeah. like a lot of films we've talked about on the show give very Eric Romer vibes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's not one we've talked about on the show, but the one for, I think, very obvious reasons that I immediately think of is just uh, My Dinner with Andre, uh, which okay. is 
like entirely a conversation at dinner. Um, and they talk a lot about a, a lot about life and other things, but they don't show that. It's just the conversation the whole time. Interesting. I haven't seen that one, so I can't comment too much on it. Ah, uh, I'm hit and miss with it. Um, I think I think the reasons I that part of it uh, bounces off of me are that uh, is intentional. Like there's, there's definitely like your main character is probably hero worshiping Andre a bit too much at certain points and like idealizing his adventurous life over his own. And I think that part of that is, uh, is a false desire or like a not as desirable as you would think. Um, so I think it, because when I listen to Andre's stories, I'm like, you've had a weird life, dude, but I wouldn't want to live it. So I think, and I think that's an, an intentional part of the movie is that you're supposed to reflect on whether or not you'd find what Andre has to say interesting or admirable in the same way that the protagonist finds what Andre has to say interesting or admirable. Um, and I think the whole thing is one shot, maybe a couple other shots too at the beginning Whoa. and end, but mostly a one which is wild, very well acted. Um, but also again like a bit like watching paint dry you need to be have a lot of internal energy to be ready for that movie yeah what about you jonathan okay well the the film that i immediately started thinking of which kind of made me start going back through my catalog is lost in translation which mm, is i could see that very romeresque there's a lot of that same uh kind of emotional temptation dynamic that we discussed when we talked about that film uh, brief encounter also a brief encounter. I could see that. Um, and then it's because it, it, it follows the sunrise sunrise, the song of two humans <laughs> plot. <laughs> Probably. Uh, we actually haven't covered brief encounter, which I think is hilarious because we brought it up an enormous amount of time. But yeah, um, a separation, uh, from Iran, uh, and on the subject of Iran, pretty much all Abbas Kiarostami, but specifically Taste of Cherry. Um, and I was thinking, I, I need to go back and revisit, but I think Sharulata follows a lot of the, that tone too, which was the uh, uh, Sajachi Thrai uh, film about the... I can't remember the whole dynamic, but I remember there was... There was the husband and wife, and the wife was being tempted by this young scholar who was living with them or something like that. Um, a very similar type of thing. Uh, there's almost a, uh, a parody in The Exterminating Angel, which is uh, Louis Bunuel's um, bourgeois commentary on a bunch of people sitting around talking about nothing for a long time, and they get trapped in this room where they can do nothing but talk to each other about nothing. Um, yeah, those those were kind of the main ones that I was thinking. That I could see some most of comparisons. Those. I don't think it's an influence, but I could see some comparisons to um to Ozu films. Oh yeah, I started thinking that too. Yeah, it's it's similar, but there's there's definitely a difference in. I I don't know if it's just subject matter or there's something distinct about Ozu that I I can't quite put them in the same category. 
Yeah, no, they, the, so I think the distinctive technique that Ozu does, which is the ellipsis, um, doesn't mm-hmm. exist in Romer films, but I think the uh, structure of a wide shot and conversation um, it, to reveal character and themes exists in Ozu films. Um, yeah. That, and then just the, the, the slow pacing, the unrushed pacing kind of fits very well with what Romer does. Uh, and then, I mean, just good cinematography held in the wide shot. Like the, the shots are always interesting to look at, even if you're, um, even if you might have tired of the conversation a little while ago. Yeah. Um, and in talking about Romer and his relation with the, uh, the Kaye group, um, there was, a uh, another interesting, <clears throat> so there's, there's a, uh, interview in Kaye du Cinema from the period after Romer had left and started making films, but then some of the Kaye guys did an interview with him and put it in the article. So they were, uh, kind of getting some thoughts of his after leaving some thoughts of his as, as a director now. So Kaye was doing the Kaye treatment, uh, to Romer. Okay, here. So he's he talks about how there are kind of two two different types of ways of making films. And he says the the filmmakers that, that he admires, they're filmmakers in whom's films you're aware of the camera, but that isn't the essential thing. It's the thing that is filmed that has more of an autonomous existence. Uh, and then he goes on to say that for some of the other Kaye directors, cinema is less an ends than a mean. Um, than a means while Rene Godard Antonini you get the sense that the cinema is contemplating itself that the people filmed exist only inside the film and I think we touched on this last time when we were talking about Godard yeah. in the fact that that Godard's Godard is making meta yeah Godard is making films about films he's making films that are aware that they are films whereas uh and Romer goes on to to say that he wishes he could make films where the camera is completely invisible, where you just feel like you are in the scene with these people. He wants these people to feel like real people that you know or could have yeah. met on the street or something like that, which I think he does a we really good job. We talked about that job. with mods, yeah, that you feel like you're at the conversation with them, and you, you well, you're prompted to to feel like you're at the conversation with them. You're but you also to feel like they have a saying. they have a life outside of what you're seeing on screen yes. because they are so multi-dimensional. They may be yeah. the most multi-dimensional characters I've seen on film because it's usually difficult to get that much, uh, that many facets of a person and what they think and believe and do on screen, which you can only really do with as much dialogue as Romer uses. So he's uniquely positioned to give us those types of characters. Whereas like Godard, his characters sometimes become caricatures or representations of things that were filming. Like they, they become splotches of paint in pop art. Like we talked about. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, Romer's, we talked about with two people with the, maybe the most diametrically opposed styles first right. in the series. But yeah, Godard is all about pushing himself and finding new things that work and toying with the, the means of movies, but maybe missing the ends of movies at times, almost like a, a, a form over function and a search for the function of the form. Um, whereas Romer is intentionally simplistic for that very, for the very opposite reason. 
He he knows what he wants to get out of cinema. He's not going to push past that by adding in something else. His his goal is for invisible filmmaking, like you've said before, which makes sense considering his heroes are from the classical and silent American film era, whose focus was very much on having you forget that you are watching a movie as well. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he has another quote in the same interview that kind of sums it up really well, where he says, I'm making a distinction between two kinds of cinema, one which takes itself for the object and end, and one which takes the world for its object and means. So Romer's films use the world, lived experience, as the subject of the film and the means for delivering an, an end outside of the film, an end which is a change in the audience, I'm presuming. He doesn't expound on that. Uh, but for directors like Godard, the film is the object. It's a film about film, and it's also the end. It's a film to be a film about film. Like, it's all kind of self-contained in this, I'm watching a film that's examining itself and its context uh, in a way that is, like, it, it may have some external results, but that's not really why Godard is making the film. He's making it because he likes to make films, and he likes films. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're all about. And, uh, you know, we talked about this last week, but everybody in the French New Wave kind of started in a similar place from loving movies and want to know what they wanting to know what they were about. But after they absorbed that knowledge, they kind of branched out on their own as they got roughed and dirty with the art of making movies itself and finding out what that means for them in practice. And I think this is not the last time we're going to see it this series. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to see it three more times and they're each going to be different. Um, and I will say finding the distinctions between the French new wave directors has maybe been the most interesting thing so far between last episode and this episode. And I'm excited to see what we'll find next. Yeah. I feel like everyone else is going to fall somewhere in the middle because I think we've hit both of the extremes. We hit the two ends. Yeah. I will say when I picked the, the order for, for this series, it was a little at random, but you know what? We'll find some meaning in that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. But what are we talking about or who are we talking about next time on the podcast, Jonathan? Next time, we're going to talk about uh, another one of the most well-known in America uh, directors, which is Francois Truffaut. The ringleader of the movement. Yeah, he was uh, outspoken. He was intellectual. He was unabashed cinematic fanboy uh and <laughs> there's so much Truffaut out there in terms of his uh oeuvre and also his uh his opinions <laughs> on lots of things that we're gonna have fun diving into but the films that we're covering we're not talking about 400 blows because we did that many moons ago mm, uh mm, and mm. there'll be a link to that in the show notes uh but mm, we're gonna talk mm. about shoot the piano player from 1960 Jules and Jim from 1962 and Day for Night from 1973. Speaking of films about films. Yes. Yep. Nope. Truffaut's going to do it too. These film boys, what are you going to do with them? But that's about all the time we have for this episode. To find links to things that we talked about today, as well as a complete list of past episodes and all 486 films we've covered so far, visit thefilmlinks.com. You can also join us for ongoing film discussions on our Discord server. 
And to stay posted about upcoming episodes, follow us at The Filmlings. Summaries for this episode were recorded by me, Blue Jay. You can discover everything I do at thebluejayproject.com. If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next time. All right, see ya. Seriously, if I had a nickel for every director who said they loved F.W. Murnau's Sunrise, A Song of Two Humans, and based a movie off of it, I would have like so many nickels. Um, Apparently, we need to do a uh, episode on it. I, yeah, I mean, I, the thing is, I, that's like the only Murnau work I know. So I've, it would be interesting to see if his other work is as influential. I bet there's something. Murnau directed Nosferatu, Alex. He directed Nosferatu? Okay, we have yeah. two things to do for And him Faust and uh, The Last Laugh. He has a couple of big, big ones. I mean, we could do a whole series on silent film directors. Um, <laughs> if we had... If we had anybody listening, they might write I mean, us yeah, email. But this is the this is the best time to do it while no one is still paying attention to the show. Quick, quick, while nobody's watching, let's do a silent <laughs> movie series. Um,